welcome to this weekly Audio Digest edition of the Herald Scotland from Friday the 28th of September to Friday the 5th of October 2018. These articles are read by volunteers at Q&R Review Print Speaking to the Blind at our studios at the Bishopbrite Media Centre. The headlines in part one. David Moyes on why the little brother of football's energy drink empire now have wings of their own. An article by Stuart Fisher, chief sports writer. Scott's battle to win MP's right to halt Brexit, likely to succeed. Graham Norton on dark times, being overpaid and his surprise at being accepted by other writers. SNP, tax cut for air passengers in doubt. Letters. Bifab saw losses soar to almost £50 million in 2017. An article by Margaret Taylor. Business correspondent and columnist. 10,000 call for Scotland's bus services to come under public control. First Devolves Benefit helps 75,000 carers. David Moyes on why the little brother of football's energy drink empire now have wings of their own. An article by Stuart Fisher, chief sports writer, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 2nd of October 2018. Red Bull Salzburg might be the little brother of world football's energy drink empire, but they are starting to assert themselves in the big boys' playground. After years of seeing their best players cherry-picked by their German affiliate RB Leipzig, the RB actually stands for a Rasenball Sport Leipzig to get round the regulations. The Austrian side, Europa League semi-finalists themselves only last year, are starting to flex their muscles when it comes to resisting their big brother's advances. That is the opinion of David Moyes, who visited Austria recently to get a first-hand view of this unique footballing franchise model. Although Leipzig are only nine years old, having made their way swiftly from the German 5th Division under the reign of Ralf Rangnick, who served as sporting director for both clubs between 2012 and 2015, the best part of 20 players were recruited for Salzburg and subsequently promoted across the border to their German counterparts. These included current Liverpool star Nabi Keita, who was on the bench for Salzburg's last meeting with Celtic, which ended in a 2-2 draw, and almost another one in Sadio Mane, who had been earmarked to make the same journey until Southampton swooped to take him to St Mary's. But it isn't the governance changes insisted upon by UEFA in order for the two clubs to share Europa League Group B, which has ushered in a new phase in the interrelationship between these two sides. Salzburg's Mali International, Amadou Haidara, was earmarked this summer as a replacement for Kaita in the Leipzig midfield. But instead, he signed a new contract at Salzburg and scored one of the goals as the little brother shot big brother in the first ever competitive match-up in this complicated global sporting family. 
No wonder Moysfield Celtic will have their hands full in Austria on Thursday night. I think Celtic will have their hands full, whether it's Salzburg or Leipzig, said Moyes, speaking courtesy of William Hill. They won't be easy games, but let me tell you, none of them will enjoy coming to Celtic Park either. You might think about Red Bull Salzburg and say they're Austrian league. Who's in that league? You might be able to name two or three at most. Yet they actually got to the semi-final of the Europa League last year. That's where you'd be hoping Celtic might get to this season. A bit like Rangers run in 2008, he added. At Everton that year, we lost to Fiorentina on penalties, who Rangers then put out in the semi-finals, and actually we beat Zenit St. Petersburg, who went on to win it in the group stages that year. But generally, these Red Bull matches will be tough games for Celtic. You just need to look at the players who've come out of Red Bull and into all the big clubs like Kaita, Mani. I think they've sold two or three other players too. They've got an awful lot of players from Africa and what's happening is they're getting them in early enough and they're selling them on. So they're getting something which we haven't got. Resentment in Austria towards Rangnick and always being the junior partner in this relationship was growing. The club supporters delighting when players such as Valon Berisha and Duji Kaleta Carr went anywhere other than Leipzig. Will it be awkward having both in the group, asked Moyes. From what I saw, it won't be because they're both completely separated, but it's a bit like Red Bull Leipzig are the big brother and they take what they want. But if you look at Red Bull Salzburg to get to the semi-final, they don't need any support from big brother. They're able to do it on their own. And I do know this year that one of the players who was supposed to go from Salzburg to Leipzig, Haidara, and the owner said, no, you're not doing it whereas Leipzig tend to get the pool of the players. You'd probably think Leipzig would be the stronger team, but I think both games will be tough games for Celtic. If you ever get the chance to go and see it, the facilities are unbelievable, added Moyes. I was amazed by the facilities they had. The weekend we were out, it was an under-16 tournament. They had Red Bull Leipzig under-16, Red Bull Salzburg under-16s, Red Bull New York under-16s and Red Bull Brazil under-16. And then there was Chelsea, Southampton, Flamengo and a team from Africa. I thought this is a great idea. They've got a chance to see all Red Bulls players and they can move them wherever they like, really. I think there's much more of this going on. You have Manchester City's model. There's a few clubs thinking the way forward is to have a franchise. The Herald Scotland. On Monday, the 1st of October 2018. News. Scots battle to win MPs' right to halt Brexit, likely to succeed. This article unattributed. A dramatic legal bid to win the UK Parliament a right to revoke Article 50, which is due to be heard by the highest court in Europe, is likely to succeed, raising the prospect of Brexit being halted before March next year, one of the nation's leading experts on EU law insists. Dr Tobias Locke, Director of European Law, Postgraduate Study at the Edinburgh Law School and author of The European Court of Justice and International Courts, said the case through to call within weeks could be decided by Christmas.
The legal action has been brought in a rare show of cooperation between Labour, Green and SNP politicians and involves MEP David Martin, MEP Catherine Styler, MEP Alan Smith, MP Joanna Cherry, MSP Andy Whiteman and MSP Ross Greer. Their previous attempts were rejected by government lawyers as hypothetical and academic and initially dismissed. But on appeal to the Court of Session, Lords Carloway, Mingus and Drummond Young agreed it should be referred to the European Court of Justice as a matter of urgency before Westminster votes on any Brexit deal ahead of the current final deadline of March 29th next year. And now Dr Tobias says it's his considered opinion that the European Court will most likely rule in their favour. And that would open the door, in theory, to MPs being able to cancel Brexit and stay in the EU if no deal is reached, or they're left dissatisfied with the proposed terms. The core of the argument is whether the UK could revoke Article 50 without requiring the assent of the other 27 EU members, and allow the UK Parliament the right to withdraw Article 50, even if the UK government itself still wanted to press ahead. Writing in today's The Herald, Dr Tobias says... My bet would be that the European Court will rule that Article 50 can be unilaterally revoked, although there's no certainty in this. Procedurally, the ECJ would send the decision back to the Court of Session, and they would then pass judgment, and it will become authoritative in UK law. That in itself won't change anything, unless the UK government changes its mind. But those bringing the case hope that it will change the parameters of the conversation. He explained... The pursuers will argue that a ruling which states that members can revoke Article 50 at any time so that Brexit is stopped with no conditions attached would change the conversation in Britain and is therefore relevant. There might be a no-deal looming in March, people might get cold feet, and if we know that we can change our mind and revoke Article 50, we might do it. If the UK can abandon Brexit before March 2019, that would kill off the argument by people like Guy Verhofstadt, the European Parliament's top representative on Brexit, that Britain would lose its opt-outs and budget rebate if it wants to remain. Labour MEP Catherine Styler is among those behind the action partly funded by crowdsourcing. Also writing in today's The Herald, she said it was important that the case be heard. She said, If we go ahead with leaving the EU next year, it will be the poorest in society who will suffer. For the sake of the workers of this country and the generations to come, I'm not prepared to sit back and accept that Brexit is inevitable. Equally, the SNP MP Joanna Cherry added, Legal opinion on whether the Article 50 notification can be withdrawn by the UK without the permission of the 27 other member states is divided. The purpose of this case is to get a definitive answer. Andy Whiteman, Scottish Green MSP, insisted that the action is necessary. Today, he writes... The UK government's handling of the referendum's aftermath and the negotiations with the EU have been inept, misguided and incoherent. The UK Parliament has a critical role to play in how this whole process ends and what shape the future takes. Events move fast and what seemed settled last week can be up in the air the next. It was with a view to bringing greater clarity and certainty to the process that my colleagues and I embarked on a legal case to answer a very straightforward question. If, for whatever reason, the UK Parliament were to wish to instruct the UK Government to revoke the Article 50 letter sent to the EU in March 2017, could it do so, knowing for certain what legal effect that would have? David Martin, currently the longest-serving MEP, added, I welcome the Scottish Courts allowing this reference. I'm confident that the European Court will say that we can unilaterally withdraw Article 50. No less an authority than Lord Kerr, the author of Article 50, has opined that that's the situation. However, we need a definitive answer to the question to avoid 11th hour incertitude. 
SNP Alan Smith said the day in court was necessary and hoped for a conclusion by the new year. He said, The UK government has fought us tooth and nail on the basis that such a revocation is hypothetical, so we should just be quiet and get to the back of the bus and let them get on with it. Well, it might not be hypothetical for much longer. I'm not going to stand by and allow them to steer us onto the rocks, and in doing so spend most of their time trying to persuade the public the rocks are out to get us. We deserve a clear-eyed, rational roadmap of how to exit from all this, and the European Court of Justice will give us one before the end of the year. Green MSP Ross Greer previously stated, We have to know that a no-deal disaster is not the only option on the table. In their draft reference to the European Court, the panel of judges asked, Where a member state has notified the European Council of its intention to withdraw from the European Union, does EU law permit that notice to be revoked unilaterally by the notifying member state? And, if so, subject to what conditions, and with what effect, relative to the member state remaining within the EU? Following their decision to refer the matter, the UK government expressed disappointment. It could still try to mount a counter-challenge and appeal beforehand. This article was unattributed. Remember, this programme is just a fraction of what we produce. You can access more daily content online via our website, qandreview.com forward slash free podcasts. For free daily podcasts of the Evening Times and Herald Scotland newspapers, weekly digests of the National Newspaper and weekly full readings of Inside Soap magazine. Now, back to the main programme. The Herald Scotland. Arts. Recorded on the 3rd of October, 2018. Graham Norton on Dark Times being overpaid and his surprise at being accepted by other writers. Admiring the London skyline from his publisher's impressive offices, Graham Norton looks tanned, trim and ready to resume work after a long summer break. As well as being the most popular chat show host in the country and one of the nation's favourite agony uncles, he's now integrating himself with the UK's literary glitterati, having just penned his second novel, A Keeper, following the best-selling success of his first, Holden. What's been incredibly surprising to me is how willing other writers have been to welcome me into the fold, Norton reveals. I thought there would be a bit of, oi, clear off, go and do your chat show. But actually, they've been incredibly welcoming. He's now on the circuit of book festivals and industry events and is delighted that other top Irish writers including Marion Keyes and John Boyne have been very complimentary about his latest novel. If a novelist started a new chat show, I don't think I'd be as nice, he observes wryly. It seems everything Norton touches turns to gold. He is the third highest paid BBC on-air star behind Gary Lineker and Chris Evans and his pay packet has been well scrutinised over the last few years. Evans is leaving Radio 2 for Virgin and BBC Director General Tony Hall recently said that his pay revelation was a factor in his exit. Norton, however, has no intention of jumping ship at the moment despite the attention his own salary has attracted but he concedes that he doesn't think he's worth what he earns. If I was my agent, I wouldn't be earning what I earn, but that's why I have an agent. I don't feel I have to defend it. When I heard it was going to be happening, his pay reveals, part of me thought, oh, I should just walk away from this. But actually, when it happens, it's just news for a day and then it's gone. You just get on with your life. If you're going to do your last hurrah, maybe you just go to Sky and take Murdoch's millions, and then go sit by the bench for the rest of your life. But I don't imagine I'll do that. 
For now, the A-Times BAFTA winner is happy to carry on presenting his popular Friday night chat show and Saturday morning Radio 2 show alongside his agony column in The Telegraph and, of course, writing novels, having already penned two memoirs as well. The latest fiction sees female protagonist Elizabeth Keane returning from New York to her childhood village in Ireland. Following the death of her mother, once back, she discovers a bundle of letters sparking questions about her paternity, the father she never knew and the secrets her mother never told. The story is told in two timelines. Nen, 40 years previously, telling the story of her mother and how she met her father. And now, as she juggles her own complicated life with an ex-husband and teenage son. Norton, 55, could have taken some of the storylines from his own agony columns as he weaves lonely hearts, contemporary single parenthood, suicide, mental health issues and fractured relationships into the tale. At times, it's quite dark. We all have dark times. Maybe it's because I'm Irish, but for me, dark times are private times. I might talk to friends, but I'm not going to write a newspaper column about it. While his storylines aren't actually from his agony column, he can see the connection and notes, What's interesting about the agony column is people's resilience and what people can cope with, and I always find that inspiring. Radio 2 listeners will hear Norton and fellow comedian Maria McEarlane mull over readers' letters on his Saturday morning agony slot, often taking different standpoints on issues, and there is much laughter on the show. Sometimes we go over the edge, Norton admits. It all depends on what the problem is. Sometimes the problems are just stupid, and you can ridicule people. But if it's a real problem, and you feel that people have actually properly written in for help, then you have to be respectful. We've had such sad things. We had a woman with a terminal illness who wanted to know about building memories with her children. Maria and I just ended up sobbing through that. He laughs loudly when asked if he takes himself seriously as an agony columnist. I don't have qualifications. I'm 55, I've been around the block and I take the telegraph column seriously because there's a duty of care there. In one letter out of three, I would suggest that people do talk to a proper counsellor or consult a doctor. I still stick my oar in, but then I'm covered. The novel comes out at the same time as a new season of his chat show, and he confesses there are guests he'd still like to welcome onto the sofa for the first time. Angelina Jolie is always welcome, so is Brad Pitt. Even though they're not together anymore, we still have never had Julia Roberts, as far as I know. But these conversations always make me nervous as I think, what if we have had them on and I've forgotten? He feels celebrities tend to be more careful about what they say these days for fear of their words and actions going viral. Television used to be so disposable. The show went out on a Friday night, you either saw it or didn't see it. Now these clips go around the world. I feel sorry for people like Jennifer Lawrence. It seems like every time she comes on, she ends up having to apologise for something and it's always nonsense. She's so lovely and such good fun. People become more reluctant if they've got a funny skill. Say, for instance, they can juggle. If in the past we found out they could juggle, we'd ask them to juggle, and they would. Now, they think if they juggle on this, they'll have to juggle on every show they go on for the rest of their life, so they decline. Away from TV and radio studios, Norton lives happily in London with his two dogs. And although he could afford to retire, he doesn't want to. You see friends who don't work and they go a bit billy bonkers. They overanalyze everything and become involved in the minutia of their lives. It's not very healthy, he reflects. I just want to carry on while I'm still having fun. A Keeper by Graham Norton is published by Hodder and Stoughton, 
on October the 4th, priced £20. The Glasgow Herald, Business, Wednesday, 3rd of October 2018. SNP tax cut for air passengers in doubt. The SNP's manifesto pledge to give a tax cut to air passengers is in doubt, after the Finance Secretary admitted he didn't know when or how it would be delivered. Derek Mackay said plans to devolve and slash air passenger duty were at an impasse because of a problem with EU state aid rules that could continue even after Brexit. Asked at Holyrood's Finance Committee when the tax would begin, Mr Mackay said, I can't answer that because the solution has not been found yet. The SNP said at the 2016 Holyrood election it planned to halve the devolved version of air passenger duty at a cost of £190 million a year by 2021 and abolish it when funds allowed. However, the scheme quickly ran into trouble over the exemption enjoyed by airports in the Highlands and Islands to help them boost traffic. If the duty was devolved to become air departure tax, ADT, there was concern this historic opt-out would fall foul of EU state aid rules and costs would soar. The standard tax rate is currently £26 for a short haul and £156 for long haul flights. Opposition parties have suggested the SNP is dragging its feet on the issue as the Scottish Greens would boycott any budget that contained ADT, putting the government in jeopardy. But at Holyrood's Finance and Constitution Committee, Mr Mackay took the unusual step of revealing Scottish government legal advice on ADT to insist that was not the case. He said his government's assessment was that the Highlands and Islands assessment was likely to breach EU state aid rules and the UK government did too. That compliance issue meant the Scottish government's law officers would not give approval to legislation containing the exemption going before Holyrood. Mr Mackay said he asked the UK government last year, as the relevant EU member state, to notify the European Commission to ask for a Highlands and Islands exemption for ADT. However, the Treasury expressed serious concern about doing so, as they did not think it was EU-compliant and would only refer the matter to Brussels if the Scottish Government accepted all financial liabilities, including years of historic non-compliance. Mr Mackay told MSPs, Would you seriously expect me to sign up to taking on the historic liability for potential non-compliance of an EU Commission matter? Of course you wouldn't. He said that if airlines in Scotland had to repay support, it would have a horrendous impact on the Highlands and Islands. And so the UK and Scottish governments had then tried to trash out a solution between them, but without success. Both governments say the other is responsible for finding a solution. Asked if he was avoiding ADT to avoid trouble with the Greens at budget time, he insisted his government had been working very hard to find an answer, but in vain. He said, we cannot implement laws in Scotland that are contrary to EU law. Now we don't know how the world changes post-Brexit, but as it stands right now we cannot continue the Highlands and Islands exemption like for like. To impose the tax for the first time on the Highlands and Islands will have a catastrophic effect on the Highlands and Islands. That's why this issue is so important to have resolved. He said, we are at an impasse with the UK government. We are trying very hard to resolve this issue, but I'm not going to sacrifice the Highlands and Islands of Scotland by imposing the tax upon them when we are genuinely trying to work out a solution on this issue. 
He said a Highlands and Islands working group was now examining all possible options. Asked when the tax was likely to be devolved, Mr Mackay said, I can't answer that because the solution has not been found yet. This article is unattributed. Here at Curian Review, we're always looking for more volunteer presenters, producers and sound technicians to volunteer with us and help produce our daily talking newspapers for the blind. If you're interested, please leave a message on our answering service at 0141 772 3976 or email us at information at The Herald Scotland, Thursday 4th October 2018. Letters. Water under the bridge for Caledonian sleeper. It is disappointing that the introduction of the new Caledonian sleeper trains has been further delayed. New Caledonian sleepers rollout hits the buffers for a second time, the Herald, October 2nd. You mentioned that the new carriages are being part funded by a capital grant from Scottish ministers of £60 million. But, as you reported in 2012, another £50 million to start the process came from the UK government in 2011-12. This money was moved to Scottish Water's investment programme as part of the 2011-12 spring budget revision with the agreement of HM Treasury. Perhaps Scottish Water will be offered the chance to sponsor some aspect of the trains as a pourboire. From R.G. Ardern, Drumdaven Road, Inverness. More research needed on impact of gender realignment surgery. There can be no doubting that some people feel strongly that they are in the wrong body. Why is the state pushing a harmful transgender agenda? The Herald, September 29th and Letters, October 3rd. Their feelings cannot be lightly dismissed. At the same time, there are even more people who can testify that at some stage in their lives that they had similar feelings and that this was a passing phase. There are two major issues that have to be considered. First, all human beings are born with chromosomes that are either XX female or XY male. Medical science has no way of changing that. This biological fact supports Jesus' affirmation he made them male and female, Matthew 19.4. The second issue concerns sex realignment surgery. Serious research needs to be undertaken on medium and long-term outcomes of this. In the 1960s, John Hopkins University was the first medical centre in the United States to undertake such surgery. After 10 years, it surveyed its patients and found that their psychological adjustments were no better than those who didn't have surgery. As a result, it decided to discontinue such surgery. More recently, Professor Miroslav Georgievic, a world-leading genital reconstruction surgeon, said research was needed into detransitioning because of the number of patients wanting to re-embrace their birth sex after experiencing severe depression. Regardless of how sympathetic the response is to people who feel deeply that they are in the wrong body, there needs to be serious research about the medium and long-term effects of gender transitioning surgery. It could be seen as heartless to encourage people to undertake complicated surgical procedures if, at the end of the day, the outcome is not entirely positive. Some other approach would be necessary. From the Reverend Dr Bill Wallace, 29 Station Road, Bankery. Stuart Waiton's anti-trans article, September 29th, is factually incorrect. 
Just like all equality movements for many decades, transgender people have had to campaign, constructively debate and take legal cases to slowly win each small equality and human rights protection. It is positive and beneficial to society, not negative or harmful, that the Scottish Government supports all equality strands. It is a matter of serious concern that he argues against taking hate incidents seriously and misrepresents trans people as powerful oppressors, despite us being a tiny and marginalised 0.6% of society. In reality, anti-trans campaigners are the ones pushing a harmful agenda, aiming to demonise and exclude trans people. Stuart Walton implies that lots of teenagers are transitioning from female to male. In fact, less than 0.2% of teenagers in Scotland have come out as trans, and a Freedom of Inter Information request in June has shown that in Scotland, just 25 trans young people under the age of 16 are receiving puberty-delaying medication, a safe and fully reversible way to temporarily pause puberty while they receive specialist counselling. No irreversible gender reassignment treatment is available before adulthood. Sadly, the vast majority of trans people still don't feel safe enough to come out during their teenage years. Those of us who do have the confidence to come out as teenagers deserve acceptance and inclusion. We spend years carefully considering our future, including more than 18 months waiting for a first gender identity clinic appointment. Trans people just want to be allowed to get on with living ordinary lives. From James Morton, Scottish Trans Alliance, 30 Bernard Street, Edinburgh. 20 mile per hour speed limit must be enforced by police. So, Scotland's experts on health have backed a plan for 20 mile per hour limits on our urban roads and streets. Health experts backed bill to bring in 20 mph speed limit and herald view October 2nd. They are to be applauded for their good intentions and I wish them every success in their efforts. The street where we live, however, a cul-de-sac, has had 20s plenty signs and a large 20 painted in the road for a number of years. The poles are almost rusted through. Such has been the local authorities' interest in and attention to maintenance. The signs have made no difference whatsoever. To my knowledge, not a single driver has ever been warned, let alone charged, for driving over the speed limit. What has changed over the years is the number of cars and delivery vans that show scant regard to other road users or children who may be playing in the street by driving too quickly. A recent report in the Herald told us that two out of five drivers were against the use of speed bumps. Equally, the headline could have stated that most drivers surveyed were in favour of speed bumps. Unless 20 mile per hour limits are enforced by police and or speed bumps or other traffic calming methods, are deployed, the speed limit signs will be found to be a waste of effort and money. From Hugh Brennan, 32 Heriot Avenue, Kilburnie. Bifab saw losses soar to almost £50 million in 2017. An article by Margaret Taylor, business correspondent and columnist, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 2nd of October 2018. A Fife engineering business that was bailed out by the Scottish Government to the tune of £35 million saw a pre-tax profit of £3.8 million turn into a loss of £48.7 million in the year to December 2017. 
The extent of the financial difficulties faced by fabrication business Bifab, which specializes in making large-scale components for the renewable energy sector, have been revealed in its accounts for the year, which have just been filed at Companies House. Despite the company's turnover rising by 65% from £61.3 million to £101 million during the year, its operations director, Martin Adam, wrote in the accounts that the business was tipped into loss-making territory, quotes, as a result of contractual difficulties with one contract. It is understood that was the 100 million contract Bifab secured to assemble 26 turbines for the Beatrice offshore wind farm. While that work had sustained the business until the early part of this year, the accounts reveal that Bifab's 2017 figures were impacted by the inclusion of an estimated loss of £35.8 million over the lifetime of one particular contract. Bifab's problems first came to light last November when the business confirmed it was preparing to file for administration after experiencing cash flow problems. The accounts reveal that the company had moved from having £5.5 million of net cash at the end of 2016 to having negative cash from operations of £12.1 million a year later. Its current liabilities, meanwhile, exceeded its assets by £30.8 million at the end of 2017. After hundreds of Bifab workers marched on Holyrood to highlight the company's plight, the Scottish Government lent the business £15 million on commercial terms in late November and brokered further cash injections from key Bifab associates. Beatrice, part owner SSE, lent the company £6 million, while its then-majority shareholder JCE Group, a Swedish business, put up a loan of £2 million. The government also had a hand in securing Bifab's eventual buyout by Canadian business DF Barnes, a subsidiary of JV Driver, in April this year. The accounts reveal that the government loan, which had been extended to £35 million and was fully drawn down, converted to equity at the time of the buyout. Since then, however, Bifab has laid off most of its workforce as a result of being unable to secure any new work. Recognising the challenges to date and to ensure the cost base was reduced until new contracts commenced, the directors had no alternative other than to put the Bifab facilities into temporary care and maintenance from July 2018 until these contracts are secured, Mr Adam wrote in the accounts. Significant reductions to the permanent workforce have occurred. Mr Adam said the firm remained confident of winning new work towards the end of this year as a result of tendering a number of major projects for the renewable sector, though warned that uncertainty in the sector as a whole could further negatively impact on the business. 
We are confident that as one of the leading UK suppliers of jackets for the offshore wind industry, we should be in a reasonably strong position to be awarded new projects during 2018, he wrote. However, as a business, we remain very cautious regarding the uncertainty and continual delay in offshore wind projects regarding planning consents and the way forward for the offshore wind industry beyond 2020. It is essential that there is a clear pipeline of projects and market confidence before the industry can take major investment decisions. During 2017, BIFAB directly employed an average of 224 people, although that number rose to around 1,400 when contract workers it took on to work on Beatrice's contract are factored in. All temporary workers were let go, but it is not clear how many people remained directly employed by the business, which did not respond to a request for comment. If you are blind or partially sighted, or know someone who is, they may be eligible to receive a BWBF Sonata Plus internet audio player, where our podcasts are available. To qualify for a free permanent loan from BWBF of a Sonata internet radio, please contact your local agent. Please note you will need to be resident in the UK, registered blind or partially sighted, over the age of eight, and in receipt of a means-tested benefit, or have a parent or guardian in receipt if you are under 18. If you think you qualify, you can find your local agent at www.blind.org.uk. And remember, when setting up the player, ask for Q and Review. Now, back to the main programme. This is an article from The Herald, 5th of October 2018, written by Martin Williams. 10,000 call for Scotland's bus services to come under public control. A campaign backed by 10,000 calling for publicity-owned bus services in Scotland has been delivered to ministers. Campaigners from Get Glasgow Moving and Community Scotland say the move should start in Scotland's biggest city, claiming there is a huge inequality in the nation's bus network. In Edinburgh, where publicly-owned loafing buses run the most of the routes, Single ticket fares at the start of the year were just £1.70. They were introducing electric fleet and campaigners point to passengers number increasing. Last year the city's public transport was voted second best in UK after London where bus fares are just one fifty. Meanwhile in Glasgow where private companies run network typical single fares are £2.30, 35% more than expensive. First Glasgow said that the private sector was better placed to access finance to deliver no emission and high quality buses. Activists were in Edinburgh to hand over a petition and protest outside the Parliament building say that better bus services will encourage people to leave their cars at home and help reduce carbon emissions. The campaign supported by Friends of the Earth Scotland calls for changes in Glasgow but protesters say they want to see public ownership across Scotland. Friends of Earth Scotland has raised concerns that bus passengers' numbers have fallen by 22% in the last 10 years and 3.5% in the last year alone. 
and a petition campaigners believe amendments to the Scottish Government's new transport bill offers a change for change by offering an option for public ownership. The petitioners, which want public ownership in Glasgow first, claimed routes are cut when they are not seen as commercially viable and the average age of a bus is 10 years old. Ellie Harrison of Get Glasgow Moving, who organised a protest, said we want a world-class, fully integrated, publicly-owned public service for everyone to encourage people to use it rather than cars. We want something that can rival what a lot of European cities are offering at the moment. We want something to rival the kind of integrated service that you get in London, where your buses, your trains and subway all work together to serve the whole city. We feel things are made toward private bus companies, and when you compare what happens in Edinburgh to Glasgow, we see that as clear evidence of their public ownership works and works in favour of passengers. The petition which was launched following anger over fare increase of up to 40% introduced by First Bus in January also calls for affordable integrated ticketing, which is city-wide smart card and daily price gap. It calls for bike hire stations across the city, which fares access for concessionary card holders. They want a publicly owned transport authority for Glasgow, with power over the entire transport network. And it calls for a coordinated long-term visit and investment to meet the city's transport needs. Friends of Earth Scotland air pollution campaigner Amelia Hanna said passengers are here to show that there is huge demand for public ownership of buses. The transport bill gives Parliament a fantastic opportunity to transform the way buses are run. People are very angry at poor bus services across many areas in Scotland. Fares are going up while services are being cut, and it's not surprising that passenger numbers are falling dramatically. By increasing bus use, we can cut air pollution and congestion, reduce climate emissions and make our towns and cities better places to spend time. The majority of people want buses in public ownership and MSPs need to heed these calls. Andrew Jarvis, Managing Director of First Glasgow, said Our fares in Glasgow start at £1.60 and our weekly tickets are substantially cheaper than those of publicly owned Northern buses at just £15.50 rather than £19. We also offer a range of cut price tickets for children, students, regular commuters and those job seeking. We firmly believe that local authorities should have the capacity, skills and finance to effectively plan and deliver a transport strategy that tackles congestion, keeps the roads and pavements in good order, deals with parking and fragments and maintains, manage and cleans the infrastructure that people who use bus services need, such as bus stations and bus stops. The private sector is much better placed to access the finance to deliver the fleet of low emission and high quality buses that customers now demand whilst being able to be fully responsive and agile to the changing market as people's travel habits change. Recent research by KPMG highlighted that 75% of the factors that impact upon bus use are not within bus operators' control. These factors such as congestion, cheap parking and changing shopping habits will simply not be redeemed by who owns that bus. First, I invest in millions in new greener vehicles, apps that make travel easier, in requisite mode 
free customer Wi-Fi, improved technology that has provided mobile ticketing and contactless payments on our vehicles, and services have kept fares lower than UK average despite cost rising and government support decline. Working in partnership playing to the strengths of all the organisations involved is the best way to deliver for the people of Glasgow, not some stale regularity debate. This is an article from senior news reporter Martin Williams. The Herald Scotland. On Thursday, the 4th of October 2018. Politics. First Devolves Benefit helps 75,000 carers. This article by Tom Gordon, Scottish political editor. More than 75,000 carers in Scotland have received an extra £221 under the first social security payment to be devolved and paid by SNP ministers. The money represents the first half of the carers' allowance supplement, which adds £8.50, or 13%, to the maximum UK carers' allowance of £64.60 a week. Payments began last month, and the second £221 tranche of the top-up is due to be paid in December. The cost of the extra benefit to Scottish taxpayers, the first of £11 to be devolved over this Parliament, is £30 million a year. Social Security Secretary Shirley Ann Somerville said, Carers make a vital contribution to this society, which this payment recognises. This investment of over £30 million a year addresses the unfairness that carers' allowance is the lowest of the working age benefits. Bringing it into line with job seekers' allowance was one of the first commitments we made in light of our new social security powers. There are an estimated 788,000 people in Scotland caring for a relative, friend or neighbour unpaid, including 44,000 children. This article by Tom Gordon, Scottish political editor. That's the end of part one. After the break, we'll be coming back with more great articles from the Herald Scotland. Welcome back. The headlines in part two. Theresa May conference speech blind to Brexit reality, say SNP. Brian Bacon, why television drama is the opium the masses sorely need. Lockdown Book Festival reports record success. Poetry hits the gym, Oban Live reports success. Campaigners in court bid to expose whitewashed probe into pro-Brexit donation to DUP. Glasgow Warriors 29, Dragons 13. A welcome win, but plenty of work to be done by Dave Rennie's men. Neil Mackay, we must not risk a Brexit which could unleash Northern Ireland bloodbath. Philip Hammond forecasts post-Brexit dividend once deal with Brussels is sealed. An article by Michael Settle, UK political editor. Scott JCB delivers record profits. Old USA Ryder Cup habits die hard. An article by Nick Roger, golf correspondent. The Herald Scotland. On Thursday, the 4th of October, 2018. Politics. Theresa May conference speech blind to Brexit reality, say SNP. This article unattributed. Theresa May is being willfully blind to the realities of Brexit if she believes her conference boasts that the UK's best days lie ahead, the SNP has said. Westminster leader Ian Blackford said that, rather than a future full of promise, 
A hard Brexit and Tory cuts were damaging the economy, businesses and living standards. He said, There's a massive gulf between her rhetoric and the reality of what's now facing the UK. If Theresa May genuinely believes that the UK's best days lie ahead, then she's just being willfully blind to that reality. We are just months away from a potentially disastrous hard Brexit or the utter catastrophe of a no-deal outcome. The SNP's Scottish Government has listened to the concerns raised by businesses. The Prime Minister has pandered to her party's Brexit extremists and treated the devolved administrations and business community with contempt. No one seriously believes the UK's best days lie ahead under this disastrous government. And the sooner Mrs May realises that and commits to averting a hard Brexit, the better. Scottish Tory leader Ruth Davidson welcomed Mrs May's attack on Nicola Sturgeon for proposing Scotland stay aligned to the EU and hence in the common fisheries policy. She said the Prime Minister made clear the Tory government would remove the UK from the CFP to become an independent coastal state. She said, Whether you vote leave or remain, there is universal agreement that the CFP has not been good for Scotland's fishing interests. Leaving will allow us to better deliver for our fishing communities around the country. The Prime Minister showed today that she has the energy, the drive and the plan to take Britain and Scotland forward. Scottish Labour leader Richard Leonard said no one would believe the Prime Minister's claim that austerity was about to end, given service cuts, children in poverty and more rough sleeping. He said, Austerity is a political choice from the Tories to shrink the role of the welfare state in the United Kingdom. It's a failed attempt to balance the books on the backs of the poor and a choice driven purely by Tory ideology. Riffing on Mrs May's dancing entrance to ABBA, Scottish Green MSP Patrick Harvey said, Theresa May sees herself as a dancing queen, but that speech was more of an SOS. The Tory leader's insistence that a hard Brexit is a real possibility will no doubt lead many to come to the conclusion that it's time to stop this mess once and for all. This article was unattributed. The Herald Scotland, Thursday 4th October 2018. Brian Bacon. Why television drama is the opium the masses sorely need by Brian Beacom, Senior Features Writer. We're all holding hands, fingers white-knuckle tight. We're squeezed onto sofas, our collective bums so close it's as if Hattie Jakes and Bernard Manning are sharing a DFS two-seater. What's causing this closeness? It's the shared experience of drama television, which has come about thanks to a new, improved product. Television, of course, has long held us. In the early 1960s, Coronation Street commanded 23 million who watched Ina, Martha and Minnie snuggle up in the snug to bitch about the tart that was Elsie Tanner and her artful dodger son Dennis. The street worked well because it was real, with entirely believable characters, as did subsequent event television such as Alvedersane Pet and Boys from the Black Stuff. But then we found other things to do, fishing, Zumba, cinema... But then, cinema began catering for 14-year-olds who crave films in which all the characters wear tights. Now we're back to television, and it's not just because we're relatively skint, yet, paradoxically, can afford TV screens bigger than Boris Johnson's eagle. It's because TV drama has become powerful again. 11 million of us couldn't go to work last month without debating whether Keely Hawes' character in Bodyguard had been stiffed, even though Radio Times dedicated a cover to her demise. And there isn't a newspaper which has not puffed BBC One's follow-up drama, The Cry. Paul Dark pulls in a healthy 7 million, and Broadchurch a very decent 10 million, in this multi-channel world. 
But why? Thanks to HBO and Netflix and Amazon raising the bar, content is king. Thanks to Breaking Bad and House of Cards, we demand drama that reflects the world around us, yet is one step removed from reality. Yes, we haven't yet created The Wire or The Sopranos, but McMafia at least reflected London as the virtual Russian state it is, where free-range oligarchs play Monopoly and have enemies dropped from balconies onto spiked railings or suffocated in zipped-up bags. Yes, it had a pretty rubbish ending, but it was nearly good. A very English scandal, however, about the Thorpe affair was wonderful, a historical tale of political loyalty, but so redolent of the fickleness of modern-day politics. Trump, Kavanaugh, Salmond, Sturgeon? And Allegory, thankfully, is back with a vengeance. The prisoner once tapped into the counterculture rebellion of the late 1960s. The fugitive reflected the American issues of freedom and movement in an existential framework. Now television is repositioning the dark themes of the day. In recent years, Dexter was an allegory for the crime and punishment debate. Right now, cult drama Killing Eve offers a subtext for relationships between women, sometimes compelled to be together, yet in competition, one hoping to emulate the other, yet just maybe love to have the other offed. A wee hint of Theresa May and Penny Mordaunt, perhaps. Meanwhile, big TV hits such as ITV's Strangers and BBC's Keeping Faith ask how we psychologically profile our partner. They question marriage, can we really know the person we pledge our troth to, whatever our troth is. Television is adding great lawyers. Doctor Who offers a perfect platform for gender fluidity, while Sherlock investigates mental health issues of OCD and drug abuse. Yes, you may argue that Dr Foster was a load of old tosh, and it was, yet it still pulled in nearly nine million, its success predicated on the women's movement ethos. A strong, powerful, educated female rails against the abusive louse of a husband when he leaves her for a younger gorgeousness. The argument slips a bit when she ravishes her ex all over the kitchen worktop. Yet the same writer, Mike Bartlett's BBC One drama, Press, is tight, reflective and extremely well acted. That's not to say some of the allegory we watch doesn't irritate the eyes worse than a rogue midgie when you're out on your bike. Picnic at Hanging Rock was an attempt to symbolise the power of modern female sexuality, but was as convincing as a teacher's attempt to argue algebra will one day be useful. Vanity Fair was poor. Despite aspirations to present modern-day dilemma in a 19th-century context, should I have sex with him, even though I don't fancy him, but he drives a Ferrari? At least both were trying to be socially relevant. Now, you may claim that drama can attract decent figures without clever allegorical intent, such as soaps, but if we take BBC Scotland's River City as an example, it's clear the storyliners don't simply nick story ideas out of the papers these days. Shellsuit Bob's inability to produce a child was clearly a comment about the growing emasculation of men. Gangster Lenny Murdoch undoubtedly represents the uncontained control and power of Google and Amazon. OK, maybe that's stretching the argument a little, but that doesn't mean the arrival of the new line of duty won't be more anticipated than the arrival of the first grandchild or even Santa. Come on, you have to admit it's close. If you are blind or partially sighted, or know someone who is, they may be eligible to receive a BWBF Sonata Plus internet audio player, where our podcasts are available. 
To qualify for a free permanent loan from BWBF of a Sonata Internet Radio, please contact your local agent. Please note you will need to be resident in the UK, registered blind or partially sighted, over the age of eight, and in receipt of a means-tested benefit, or have a parent or guardian in receipt if you are under 18. If you think you qualify, you can find your local agent at www.blind.org.uk. And remember, when setting up the player, ask for Cue and Review. Now, back to the main programme. The Herald Scotland. Arts. Recorded on the 3rd of October, 2018. Arts News. Wigtown Book Festival reports record success. Poetry hits the gym. Open Live reports success. By arts correspondent, Phil Miller. The Wigtown Book Festival attracted audiences of nearly 30,000 people to its 20th birthday event. The provisional figures show a 20% increase compared to 2017. Adrian Turpin, Artistic Director of the Wigtown Book Festival, said, We've been overwhelmed. This year's festival has been a huge success, the biggest yet. The level of support, enthusiasm and enjoyment has been just incredible. At one point on Saturday afternoon, there were 735 people attending festival events in a town with a total population of under 1,000. We hope that this points to a great future for Scotland's book town, the festival and most importantly of all for people's love of books and reading. He added, the festival seems to be attracting a growing number of international visitors. This year we've had people from the USA, South Africa and all over Europe. I even met an 80-year-old Israeli lady who had read about it and decided to pop over for a holiday. And with Hollywood buying options on two books by locally based authors, which put a major focus on the town, its bookshops and all the people who live here or visit, we could even be looking forward to Wigtown the movie. Sean Biffle's diary of a bookseller, which has just entered paperback bestsellers list at number six, is about his running Scotland's largest second-hand bookstore in the town. Three Things You Need to Know About Rockets is a memoir by Jessica Fox about leaving her job with NASA and ending up working and finding romance in Sean's bookshop in the town. It was published in 2012 and has just been reissued. On National Poetry Day, 4th of October, the Scottish Poetry Library, SPL, is marking the day with a partnership with Glasgow Sport that will place a poem printed on mirrors in 21 gyms and a dozen swimming pools in Glasgow. The poem is Colin Hurd's Meadowbank Changing Manifesto. Hurd's poem will be viewable on the windows and mirrors. The SPL has also worked with the National Library of Scotland and produced a short film based on Dr. Hay by James Robertson. Robertson's poem depicts in Scots Dr. Who and his adventures. The film features several medical doctors and NLS staff members, plus James Robertson himself, reading Dr. Hay. NPD 2018 takes place three days before the new series of Doctor Who debuts on BBC One with Jodie Whittaker, the first woman in the TV show's history to play the title role. Robertson has revised the poem, originally written in 2012, to reflect the change in gender. Open Live contributed over £1.4 million to the local economy this year, according to a recent economic impact survey. The figure shows a 3% rise in impact from last year. The 2018 event, in its third year running, attracted more than 8,000 attendees. Oban's Mossfield Stadium was transformed into a stadium-sized concert arena for the event, which featured Skerivor, Skippinish, Tidelines and Peat Bog Fairies. Naomi Houlihan, 
The event director for Open Live said, Since day one of Open Live, our main aim has always been to bring positive economic benefits to the town, so the news of a rise in visitor spend is very encouraging. By arts correspondent, Phil Miller. This is an article from The Herald. 5th of October 2018. Written by Michael Settle. Campaigners in court bid to expose White Ross probe into pro-Brexit donation to DUP. Pro-EU campaigners are set to launch a court bid to expose what they regard as a whitewashed investigation by the elections watchdog into £435,000 pro-Brexit donation to the Democratic Unionist Party during the 2016 EU referendum campaign. The Good Law Project, founded by QC, John and McCann, and Labour's Ben Bradshaw, the former Culture Secretary, are behind the planned legal move at the High Court in London, which claims the Electrical Commission acted without due reliance in respect of its probe into the Constellational Research Council's donation to the DUP and its failure to investigate fully. The Secretive CRC, headed by Richard Cook, a former vice-chairman of the Scottish Conservatives. If the campaigners succeeded in judicial review of the case, then they will ask the Commission of Forfeit for CRC's donation to the DUP. Arlen Foster, its leader, has insisted the 435,000 gift was properly accounted for. Her DUP colleague, Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, has explained that the CRG money was spent on poor Brexit advertising throughout the UK, noting how the referendum campaign was not a Northern Ireland referendum, but a UK-wide referendum. Because of the troubles, donations to political parties in Northern Ireland are confidential amid fears of repressals if donors are identified. The 435,000 donation to the DUP has been raised at Westminster by the SNP, which regarded it as party of Tories' dark money. In March, Ian Blackford, the party's Westminster leader, asked Theresa May about what he called was a shady business. The Prime Minister made clear that it was for the Commission to investigate any alleged breaches of campaign spending. Mr Cook is a prominent figure in Scottish Tory circles and has stood in several elections, most recently in 2010, in the Westminster seat of East Renfrewshire. He chairs the CRC, the group of pro-union businessmen, about which little is known. It was established amid discreet about the way better together ran the pro-union campaign in the 2014 referendum and has pledged to bankroll any credible unionists group in any future Scottish independence referendum. The CRC backed Brexit in a 2016 referendum after concluding neither the EU would be good for the Union and bad for the nationalism. This is an article from UK political editor Michael Settle. Here at Q and Review, we're always looking for more volunteer presenters, producers and sound technicians to volunteer with us and help produce our daily talking newspapers for the blind. If you're interested, please leave a message on our answering service at 0141 772 3976 or email us at information at The Herald Scotland on Monday the 1st of October 2018 Sport Rugby 
Glasgow Warriors 29, Dragons 13. A welcome win, but plenty of work to be done by Dave Rennie's men. This article unattributed. Is it really carping to complain about a 5 tries to 1 bonus point win that shifts the team to the top of their conference? In this case, no it's not. Glasgow's victory has to be seen in the context of tackling Saracens in less than a fortnight, and they never even tried to pretend their performance was close to the level they'll need that day. There were positives, plenty of them, but there were also enough mistakes and enough messed up scoring chances to leave Dave Rennie, the head coach, admitting there's still work to be done. At least it was better than the week before when the side made every mistake in the book and invented enough new ones to demand a reprint in going down to defeat against the Southern Kings in Port Elizabeth. Being better than that wasn't hard. For a start, they did score five tries. The only try they conceded was from a dropped pass, which was hacked through for visiting centre Adam Warren to get there first. Not much any side can do about those other than not drop the ball in the first place. It could also be crucial for the Saracens game that the set-piece was top-notch, though there is a severe limit to how much Glasgow should read into that, given that the Dragons had rested a number of frontline players and lost Richard Hibbert, their hooker and captain, after only eight minutes. Still, Johnny Gray ruled the line out, and Ollie Kebble came through a sticky opening period, when he could do nothing right in the eyes of referee Stuart Berry to dominate the scrums. It was an impressive all-round performance from the South African prop, who claimed his first try for Glasgow in the opening minutes, went on to lead to tackle count, and feature prominently in the carrying statistics, as well as starting to win scrum penalties. He's a big man, Rennie said. I've not seen him score too many tries. He looked pretty excited about that. The scrum was dominant. He was a beast in that area. It's great to have him back in the squad. The set-piece was great once we had dusted the scrum to the way the referee wanted it. To be fair, Saracens are less likely to come on a purely damage limitation exercise, the Dragons' main mission being to make sure they gave Glasgow as little quick ball as possible so that they could target Adam Hastings at fly half to stop the ball getting out to the dangerous backs. We need to be a bit more clinical, Rennie added. We had a few more opportunities and should have taken them. We got a lot better balance once we got down their end in the second half and started to go through the middle before exposing them on the outside. We missed a few opportunities in the first half. They were trying conditions, but we created lots of opportunities, which we're happy about, but we want to be more clinical. Having said that, if we had put 50 on the board, that would not be good for us either. We had to work for that. We're happy with a bonus point win, but we'll still have to be better next week against Zebra and the week after, the Saracens Heineken Champions Cup opener. It all started so promisingly. Glasgow nearly engineered a try from first possession, and from the attacking platform that gave them, did manage a try a few minutes later, when Kebble charged onto the bowl and went over. The next half hour, however, were pure frustration, as poor kicks, bad handling and too many penalties gave the Dragons a foothold in the game, with two successful penalties despite playing into a strong wind. The Scots did get it right just before the break, as Hastings created the space for Lee Jones to cross on the right wing and proved that was no fluke when the winger was on Alex Dunbar's shoulder to take his second scoring pass just after the interval. Into the wind in the second half should have been tougher for Glasgow, but that proved to be the first of three tries they managed, Hugh, Jones and Dunbar grabbing the others. Rennie knows, however, they left at least as many out there. With 63% of the possession and 70% of the territory, they were in a position to cruise through the game against a side that missed a staggering 43 tackles. That the Dragons had hopes of a losing bonus point until three minutes from time came down to Glasgow's mistakes. Rennie was a long way from jumping up and down in joy. 
It wasn't all bad like the week before, but nothing to cause sleepless nights down at Saracens either. Glasgow Warriors. Tries, Kebble, 5, L. Jones, 37-42, H. Jones, 54, Dunbar, 77. Cons, Hastings, 2. Dragons. Try, Warren, 45. Con, Thomas. Pens, Robson, 7-20. Scoring sequence, Glasgow Warriors first. 7-0, 7-3, 7-6, 12-6, time. 17-6, Glasgow Warriors. R. Jackson for B. Thompson, 72. L. Jones, H. Jones for N. Grigg, 63. A. Dunbar, N. Matawalu, A. Hastings, A. Price for G. Horn, 63. O. Kebble for A. Allen, 67. F. Brown for G. Turner, 63. D. Ray for A. Nichol, 72. R. Harley for A. Davidson, 63. J. Gray, R. Wilson, C. Gibbons, M. Fegerson for C. Fusaro, 68. Dragons, J. Williams, D. Howells for W. Talbot Davis, 50. A. Warren, J. Sage, J. Rosser, A. Robson for J. Lewis, 26. T. Noyle, R. Bevington for B. Harris, 50. Captain R. Hibbard for E. D., 8. L. Fairbrother for A. Jarvis, 50. B. Nansen for H. Taylor, 56. R. Landman, A. Wainwright for J. Thomas, 63. N. Cudd, L. Evans for J. Thomas, 28-31. The referee was Stuart Berry from South Africa, and the attendance was 7,351. This article was unattributed. Article from Herald Scotland, 2nd of October, 2018. Opinion. Neil Mackay, we must not risk a Brexit which could unleash Northern Ireland bloodbath. Neil Mackay, writer-at-large. I had forgotten how many murders I covered as a young reporter in Northern Ireland in the 1990s until I was spring-cleaning my study a while ago and stumbled on a scrapbook I kept from the time. Inside the black file are newspaper clippings of murder after murder, nearly all of them close-up and personal killings, where a man puts a pistol to the head of another man and pulls the trigger. To my shame, many of the names of the victims had paled from my memory until I rediscovered that macabre scrapbook. My only excuse is that I reported on so many murders back then that it would be impossible to remember them all. That was the nature of the Troubles. It was an endless flood of violence and death. But one name still stood out clearly in my mind. Sean Monaghan, a young Catholic man of just 20 years old who lived with his Protestant girlfriend, Noel Gould. Noel was 19 when the Ulster Freedom Fighters, a barbaric sectarian murder gang, abducted the father of her twin baby daughters, Zoe and Kelly, aged 18 months. Police officers told me at the time that after his abduction, Sean went through 90 minutes of hell. Try not to even imagine what happened to him in that time. He was eventually shot five times in the head and his body was dumped bound and gagged on waste ground. Sean may have been shot because he was a Catholic who lived with a Protestant, or it may have simply been a random sectarian murder. Either way, Sean was dead and his family destroyed. As I write this, 
I'm looking at a picture of Noelle and her children in the Belfast Telegraph a few days after Sean's murder in August 1994. Her children are blank-eyed in her arms, and Noelle's face is a numb mask of grief. I've been thinking a lot about women like Noelle over recent weeks. It was often the widows who spoke most eloquently in the name of peace during the 30 years of violence. On Sunday, the Prime Minister admitted that the Conservative Party could not rule out a hard border across Ireland in the event of a no-deal Brexit. A state of affairs being whipped up by thoughtless, careless men like Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg. So that history remembers this moment accurately, we need to be very clear that a hard border across Ireland poses a serious threat to peace. New research by Brexit Law NI, a partnership between Queen's University, Ulster University and human rights experts from the Committee on the Administration of Justice, CAJ, warns that conflict in the north of Ireland could reignite over Brexit. CAJ Director Brian Gormley says... As the leaving process lurches ever nearer to a hard or no-deal Brexit, there is a risk of nationalists becoming more and more disillusioned, while unionists coalesce in defence of Brexit and the border. The last thing we need is a new bone of contention between our people. Dissident Republicans in the North are still armed and itching to return to violence. One told researchers, Brexit was manna from heaven for our perspective. When he was asked about a border across the island, he said, the harder the better. Brexit Law NI's experts say a hard border would be a mobilising agent for violence. The Good Friday Agreement was a masterful piece of political prestigitation. Those who identified as Irish could feel Irish. Power sharing and the EU ensured that. And those who identified as British could feel British. The North had bred itself white for 30 years. The paramilitaries were old, tired and sick of jail or being on the run, and the Good Friday Agreement seemed to recognise everyone's hopes and fears. A very uneasy peace settled over the country. Though terror and sectarianism were far from over, the people were no longer living in the era of mass murder. However, once the peace deal was signed, most of those living in mainland Britain quickly forgot that Northern Ireland even existed. Those with the weakest memories, ironically, seem to be the luminaries of the Conservative and Unionist Party. It is on their watch that the prospect of a united island has become a greater possibility than at any time since the partition of the island in 1921. Only a fool would think that a hard border across Ireland would not create fear and anger among Republicans. Only an idiot would think that the prospect of Irish unity would not create fear and anger among loyalists. Yet what do the Tories offer? On Sunday came the announcement of a post-Brexit festival of Britain and Northern Ireland that will strengthen what Theresa May calls our precious union. Peace will not be safe in Northern Ireland without the status quo without the finely tuned nuance of the Good Friday Agreement, which keeps loyalists and republicans from each other's throats. The people of Northern Ireland know this. That's why they voted against Brexit. And so something which no one from the North ever wants to imagine, let alone say, creeps into the background. The spectre of violence, the shadow of the gunman, something never long absent from the stage of Irish history. One slim hope is that Brexit can be halted in its tracks. Yesterday, 
we learned that a legal bid by Scottish politicians from the SNP, Greens and Labour to grant the UK Parliament the right to revoke Article 50 looks increasingly likely to succeed. Stopping a hard Brexit is the only thing which will keep the devil at bay in Northern Ireland. Noelle Gould's children, Zoe and Chloe, will now be young women aged 26. Their mother told me back in 1994, When my children grow up, I will tell them the truth about what happened, what a good man their father was and how they lost him. She told me she would raise her children not to hold any hate. Brexit cannot be allowed to destroy what little peace, what little hope, people like Noel Gould and her two daughters, and so many other countless widows and orphans, managed to salvage from the rubble of their lives in the wasteland that was 30 years of civil war in Northern Ireland. Remember, this programme is just a fraction of what we produce. You can access more daily content online via our website, qandreview.com forward slash free podcasts for free daily podcasts of the Evening Times and Herald Scotland newspapers, weekly digests of the National Newspaper and weekly full readings of Inside Soap magazine. Now, back to the main programme. Philip Hammond forecasts post-Brexit dividend once deal with Brussels is sealed. An article by Michael Settle, UK political editor, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 2nd of October 2018. Philip Hammond has predicted there will be a post-Brexit dividend as he insisted the party's political challenge was to ensure a 21st century capitalism delivered for people. The Chancellor, in his keynote address, told delegates, I'm going to stick my neck out here today and make a prediction to you that when the Prime Minister gets a deal agreed, there will be a boost in our economic growth. A deal dividend, which we will share in line with our balanced approach between keeping taxes low, supporting public services, reducing the deficit and investing in Britain's future. He said that following the Labour Party conference of last week, the nation faced a clear choice. A choice between the seductive simplicity of the brave new world of Corbyn and Macdonald's populism, where the narrative is all about easy answers, and our pragmatism, which is sceptical of ideologues, which starts with the real world we live in and seeks to make it better, and recognises that there are no shortcuts and no free lunches on the road to a better Britain, that no wealth is created without work, no gain without sacrifice, no reward without effort. Denouncing the socialism espoused in Liverpool as a discredited ideology and branding Labour a backward-looking party, Mr Hammond told conference... We will not outbid Corbyn with short-term gimmicks that cause long-term damage. We will not outspend him with reckless borrowing. We will not promise the illusory utopia he offers because, as those who have tried it have shown time and time again, it is based on a lie and it always ends in tears. He explained how no one should mistake the conservative belief in evolution over revolution for a a lack of passion or commitment to change. 
to a paucity of values or ideals. Throughout history, conservative governments from Peel to Disraeli to Thatcher have delivered momentous change, drawing on our values that have stood the test of time, the importance of family and community, the strength of our nation, united by history, culture and identity, standing strong as a force for good in the world, the insight that economic freedom goes hand in hand with political freedom, and above all, the belief in the power of enterprise as the route to unleash talent and to improve lives. That is why we back business, declared the Chancellor. We back business as the cornerstone of a successful economy, as a force for good in our society and as an essential expression of our values. So just in case anyone anywhere was in any doubt at all, let me say it loud and clear. The Conservative Party is and always will be the party of business. Elsewhere in his speech, Mr Hammond threatened internet giants with a new digital services tax to ensure they paid their fair share of the cost of public services. He stressed that with international talks stalling, Britain was ready to go it alone with a levy on the tech companies. The measure formed part of a programme to regenerate capitalism, which the Chancellor said was needed to tackle the challenges of the modern world and renew the appeal of the free market to a new generation. The best way to tax international companies is through international agreement, explained Mr Hammond. But the time for talking is coming to an end and the stalling has to stop. If we cannot reach agreement, the UK will go it alone with a digital services tax of its own, he declared. The Chancellor acknowledged that many voters felt left behind by economic change and feared they would fall further behind as new technologies like artificial intelligence and driverless cars made their jobs obsolete. He warned that the Tories must persuade these people that the market system could work for them or see them fall for the seductive simplicities offered by Labour. In response, John MacDonald for Labour said, The Chancellor's speech confirmed the bankrupt state of the Tory party, increasingly irrelevant and cut off from the real day-to-day -day life most people experience. The Shadow Chancellor added, the Tories are bereft of any fresh ideas, forced to resort to a half-hearted filching of policies from others and desperately trying to revive long, outdated slogans. As the Tories sink into a pit of bitter infighting, we mustn't allow them to take the country down with it. The Held Scotland Business Recorded on the 3rd of October 2018 Scott JCB delivers record profits by Deputy Business Editor Scott Wright. Family-owned Scott JCB Holdings has reported record profits and turnover amid buoyant conditions in its core construction and agriculture sectors while unveiling its latest acquisition. New accounts for the Glasgow-based firm show that pre-tax profits climbed 5.5% to £4.37 million in the year ended December 31st, which came as turnover rose 13.7% to £135.4 million. And the company is looking to build on that momentum further to its acquisition of Forfar-based AM Philip Agritech, completed in April. Scott JCB 
which did not disclose the value of the deal, has taken on all of Philip's 80 staff and its five depots, boosting its overall headcount to more than 350. The company had already increased staff numbers to 274 from 240 during 2017. With depots in Glen Roves, Perth, Fraserburg, Forfar and Huntley, Philip brought with it the JCB franchise for Sector in Tayside and Forfar and the North East. As with its acquisition of Kelso and Lovian Harvesters in 2014, Scott JCB will continue to trade from those depots under the AM Philip banner. Stephen Barker, finance director of Scott JCB, said AM Philip was a good cultural fit for the company with a similar ethos. Both companies were family owned and built on customer service. Mr Barker said 2017 had seen strong sales of plant machinery and after sales services in both agriculture and construction. Asked whether the continuing Brexit uncertainty was affecting sentiment in the sectors, Mr Barker said although Scott JCB and its customers were observing events, people are just getting on with things. He added both sectors are pretty buoyant. By Deputy Business Editor, Scott Wright. Nick Roger, the Eagles have landed as old USA Ryder Cup habits die hard. An article by Nick Roger, golf correspondent, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 2nd of October 2018. Ah, the old alliance. A week spent burling and twirling about the streets of Versailles in the hire car, honking the horn at chaotic, careering scooters and greeting my harumphing colleagues with a daily peck on two cheeks, has only heightened this correspondent's fondness for the way of life in France. I now feel as French as a gently smouldering gold wire cigarette abandoned next to a rumpled bed. The Ryder Cup is done and dusted for another couple of years and Paris put on the kind of eye-opening bonanza you'd get at the Moulin Rouge. The USA, meanwhile, seem happy to descend into a panto you'd see at the pavilion. In the sighing, head-shaking words of one of my fellow scribes, they still don't get it, do they? While European unity, continuity and clarity manifested itself in a buoyant 17.5 to 10.5 victory on Sunday, the USA players were left to lick their wounds. One of them opted to open up some old ones too. Patrick Reed's admission in the aftermath that American egos in the team room were part of the problem was so very, well, American. The Masters champion's criticism of Jordan Spieth, the issues obviously with Jordan not wanting to play with me, wasn't quite the grisly public filleting that Phil Mickelson performed on Tom Watson in front of a watching world in 2014, but it was just as savaging. The US will probably have to form another task force to take to task those who dared to disrupt the work of the initial task force. It wasn't supposed to be like this, of course. Four years ago at Glen Eagles, Mickelson's withering critique of Watson's leadership may as well have been done with a double-edged sword. On the one hand, Mickelson was flogged for his self-serving, dishonourable dissing of a golfing icon as he went against the unwritten code of conduct that states all grumblings of discontent should be kept in the team room. 
On the other, the Californian was patted on the back for unveiling the home truths of the USA's seemingly slapdash approach and instigating the formation of that instantly mockable task force. Calling on just about everything from past players, past captains, past presidents, songs from the Old West and the ghost of John Wayne, this new all-embracing approach was going to transform US fortunes in the biennial bout. Instead of disaccord and disarray, there was grinning talk of harmony and unity. Dictatorship had been replaced by democracy and everybody was given a say in the process. Not so much my way, more his way and his way. Oh, and don't forget his way. And guess what? The USA won the next Ryder Cup at Hazeltine in 2016 and everything was rosy again. It seems they're going back to square one after this pummeling in Paris, though. There are plenty of reasons why the USA lost the 42nd edition of this transatlantic tussle. The Europeans played better for a start. Their big players stepped up to the plate and their wild cards prospered. But with Reed lifting the lid on the civil unrest, it seems that old American habit of flinging a star-spangled spanner into their own works has reared its head again. Unifying messages pasted on the team room wall like leave your egos at the door didn't have the desired effect. The egos had landed. The task force were charged with manufacturing some kind of cheery cohesion, but the sticky tape has come loose at the edges. In the Ryder Cup, there can be no place for hubris. Tiger Woods' reappearance in the Ryder Cup for the first time since 2012 was hailed to the rooftops, but over three days at Le Golf National, he looked utterly miserable and once again proved that he is not cut out for the team game. Phil Mickelson, who sat out the entire Saturday, was another who simply looked like he didn't want to be there. Between them, they lost six matches. Next month, the Tiger and Phil show will see them playing in a $10 million pay-to-view shootout in Las Vegas. If their Ryder Cup showings are anything to go by, they'll have to do the kind of cut-price deal you used to get with Allied Carpets to get folk to pay up. The USA took a step forward in 2016, but have stumbled two steps back. For Europe, meanwhile... It's onwards and upwards. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of The Herald Scotland. This weekly talking newspaper digest was a Q&Review recording service production. The readers were volunteers at Q&Review and the producer was Jordan Duncan. Q&Review Recording Service Limited is a registered Scottish charity. Number SC018016. Our registered office is at 18 Crowhill Road, Bishop Briggs, Glasgow. G641QY. Remember, you can always get in contact with us by email at information at qandreview.com or by leaving us a message on our answering service at 0141 772 3976.